You know, our sermon this morning is titled Judgment, Justice, and the Day of the Lord. And it's going to come from the book of Obadiah. It's kind of uh, probably one of the least read or preached sermons in the Bible comes from the book of Obadiah. Because Obadiah is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. Now, I want to make, it's kind of worth noting here, you know, when, when people or scholars mention major and minor prophets, it may cause some to think, well, maybe what they had to say really isn't worth all that much, right? Or maybe, maybe they're less important than others. But I would offer that the entirety of God's word is important. Obadiah is not minor because of the content, but rather during the Constantine era, just for easy discussion, they, they kind of bucketed them into major and minor prophets based off length. So we'll look through Obadiah this morning, and I'm hoping that we'll see kind of two main themes of God's judgment, particularly on Edom, and then the day which that happens, the day of the Lord, where God delivers Israel. I pray that we ultimately come to see through Obadiah the glory of God in salvation through judgment, what it means in the historical and what God has for us here today applicable to us and how it all points to Jesus. So I'm going to read it, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get started. And, uh, you know, for those of you that weren't aware, I'm a King James person, so don't hold it against me. I, you know, there's pew Bibles that are not King James. You're, they're, they're okay, so there may be a couple weird words. Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rocks, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to ground? Though thou exalt thyself as, an, as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, Thence I will bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of the, thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in the day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And they might, or sorry, and thy mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother, in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest have thou rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in their day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither should thou have stood in the crossway, to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all heathens. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye drank upon my holy mountain, so shall all heathen drink continually, yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. 
but upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. And there shall be a holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the, day of, for the Lord hath spoken. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, they of the plain, the Philistines, they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of the host of his children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Blessed be the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come here before you this morning as we are. Maybe distracted, maybe tired, fearsome, joyful. Lord, open our hearts. Lord, use this time to speak to us that we may hear you and come to know and trust in you, not of our own works, but at the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, so uh, just kind of laying some context real quick about, about Obadiah. I think it's kind of helpful. You know, Obadiah stated in the author, if you look in verse 1, it says the vision of Obadiah. It's right off the bat, it states Obadiah is the author. Obadiah is a fairly common name if you read the Old Testament. You'll find it. I, I think of uh, one example. Ben went through First Kings uh, probably a year ago, I think, by now. But when Jezebel kind of was terrible, like cut off the heads of prophets, right? There was an Obadiah, like, took and hid 100. Uh, so so the, it's a common name. The meaning of the name Obadiah is servant or worshiper of the Lord. Uh, so Obadiah, in the, you know, he writes his prophecy, is given to him by the Lord here. You know, and, you know, Ben mentioned previously we've, when we've covered prophets that when dating the Scripture, when it, like when it was written, when did Obadiah prophesize these things were going to come? You have to uh, compare it against other scripture and look at the prophecy and relate it to history, the history of God's people, right? So in doing that for when was Obadiah, the prophecy of Obadiah written, you know, biblical scholars kind of land in one of two places. One's probably more likely than the other. The first one is the rebellion of Edom against Judah during the reign of Jehoram. And that happened around 850 B.C., uh, that'll be referenced, you know, like in Second Kings or Second Chronicles, Second Kings eight or Second Chronicles twenty-one, and that would make Obadiah, if this were the case, a contemporary of Elisha. The second one, which I feel is more likely, and uh, I'll say why in a minute, is when the Babylonians attacked Jerusalem. Right? It occurred over a period of from, and I'm looking to make sure I get it right, like 600 BC to 586 BC. And if that were the case, it would make Obadiah a contemporary of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah. And the reason why some biblical scholars, and maybe I myself, lean this way is because there's some strong parallels between Obadiah verses 1 through 6 and Jeremiah chapter 49. You know, so, so what we know is theologians, scholars for 2,000 years have examined this, looked at this. They land in one of two places. While it's often important to know, to know when it was written, for me, the context of today's sermon is more focused on the why behind it. You know, the why behind it being God's people were experiencing distress, calamity. We heard the word calamity, I think, what, 15 times when I was reading it this morning. So it's helpful to review this, and it's clear that we see that Edom watched. They even celebrated the calamity and misfortunes of God's people. Edom rejoiced over the misfortune of them, stood by, did nothing. And, you know, all of this is rooted out of and draws from two brothers, Jacob and Esau. So if you recall, and you go back to Genesis chapter 25, you know, Jacob and Esau, twins, born of Rebekah and Isaac, and, you know, there, from the onset, there was kind of tension, right? There was tension where 
you know, one parent favored one child, the other parent paid the other child. And it says in, in Genesis 25, 21, Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, If it be so, why am I thus? Why, why am I thus? And she went to inquire to the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and first came out red all over like a hairy garment, and his name was Esau. And after that came out his brother, and he took his hand on Esau's heel, and his name was Jacob. So, so, so from the onset, God has declared, you know, Jacob, Esau, struggle, in the womb, two nations. You know, if you recall, I think, you know, Esau lose his birthright to Jacob. And like the two brothers, Israel and the Edomites were rarely at peace throughout the history of the people of God. And we'll see throughout the prophet of Obadiah, God pronounces his judgment on Edom for their prideful, callous actions towards his people. You know, we see other examples where the Edomites have treated God's people poorly. If you go to Numbers 20, in Numbers chapter 20, particularly I think starts around verse 14, uh, you know, the people of God are on their way, you know, they've, they've crossed, they've, they're in, exited exile from Egypt, they're returning, steering towards the, the promised land, and they come upon Edomites. And Moses even refers to them in numbers as my, our brother, like our brother. And they want to pass through the land of the Edomites in this, in this excess. And not only were the Edomites, you know, like, no, you can't. They were threatening in it. Like, they even used the word, we will bring a sword. Like, if you come, like, if you even set foot, we're going to meet you on the way with a sword. And in verse 21, it says, thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his border and Israel was turned away from him. In 2 Kings 8, we find and read the details of the story of where Edom revolts from under Judah. King Saul, King David, Jehoram, Ahazel, all had conflicts with Edom. Matter of fact, if you look in Psalm 137.7, you'll see that it tells how Edom urged the Babylonians to destroy the kingdom of, of Judah. And as we move forward, we'll see this unfold in two parts here in Obadiah. You know, the Lord has given Obadiah this prophecy, I, the Lord, Edom, for what you have done to my people, am going to pass judgment on you. It's kind of one bucket and the why behind it. And the other bucket is this day of the Lord, the day of the Lord being the day that this is going to happen. Like, there's going to come an appointed time where these things I've warned you about through Obadiah, this, this judgment coming upon you, Edom, there's a finite point that I, God alone, not you, not your king, I, God alone, know when it's going to occur and what happens on that day. So we read in verses 2 through 4, begins the announcement of Edom's destruction, right? So we have, behold, I have made thee small amongst, so I, God, am making you small amongst the heathen, you're, you're, you're greatly, no one likes you anymore. Like you had all these allies, you had, you'd kind of cheated and maybe scandalized and cohorted with, with enemies, they now hate you. I have made thee small among the heathen, you're greatly despised, and why? Because they allowed the pride in their own heart to deceive them. You know, I, I thought about putting a map up here, but we've had several, you know, over the couple, last couple months, particularly when... Ben was in Daniel. So if you recall, Edom was kind of a southern neighbor to Judah. They, they shared a border. And we, we've covered a few examples where their treatment of not only their neighbor, uh, the kingdom of Judah, but their brother, right? They, they're two peoples descended from two twins. How poorly they treated them. And it might be good this morning in this kind of moment to stop and consider, you know, we all have neighbors, how are we in the business of treating our neighbors? Whether the neighbors be the people in our neighborhoods where we live, 
our neighbor in the cubicle next to us, people sitting beside us this morning, our family members. You know, not show of hands, is there anyone in here who does not have a neighbor in some capacity? Okay, I'm just checking this. Didn't want to be too presumptive, right? So, so it's easy to sit there and think, you know, so Jesus in Matthew says, what, they ask what the greatest commandment is. The greatest commandment, love thy Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and mind, and love thy neighbor as thyself. So when considering the context of neighbors, how hard is it to love your neighbor that you like? Maybe, maybe you have a neighbor that follows the same sports team. Maybe they drive the same brand of vehicle. Maybe they have the same political affiliation. So maybe it's probably easy, right? You know, you get along with them well, things go well. How hard is it to love the neighbor that looks differently than, than you, than me? How hard is it to love the neighbor that isn't neighborly? Like, like think about, I think about trash cans. You know, it's a lot of times it's easy to vision these large, visible, scandalous public things. Like, if your neighbor crashes their car into your house because they don't like you, that's large, that's visible, it's, it's, it's easily seen. But I offer a lot of the time it's, it's these small subtleties and small human interactions in the daily workings and livings of our lives is where God is calling us to have opportunities to show the love of our neighbors as we love ourselves. And a good example may be a trash can, right? So, so if you have a neighbor that, that you're, you get home late from work and that neighbor has decided, you know, you worked late, so I, I'm going to be a good neighbor. I'm going to bring your trash can up, you know, so you don't have to. Or maybe they saw some of your trash on the ground, they picked it up. So you might then be encouraged to, well, you get up at 3 a.m., so maybe you're the neighbor that says, you know, they, they, brought, my, they brought my can up, so I'm going to go, you know, kind of bring their can back to the road on the next trash day, kind of showing them reciprocal, right? That seems, that seems easy. But how are we about doing that on the hard days? When we get home late, we're mad, we're angry. Their trash can's knocked over. We don't know why, but there's trash everywhere in our yard. It's kind of a rhetorical question, but it's something to consider when we consider that, you know, we are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. And one of the grievances, as we see here, is that Edom certainly did not. So, you know, the Edomites, they had a capital city. You may have heard it was called Petra. So they had this capital city, Petra. It was cut into a solid rock cliff set in a canyon. So you see here, their pride in your own heart deceive you. You dwellest in the clefts of the rocks. It's high, and you say it in your heart, right? So the, they, they have built this capital city in this kind of rock cliff face. It's got a, a canyon, and it's got a, like a one narrow entrance. So, it's, so if you're like on the outside looking in, you're like, this is the easiest thing to defend. Rock Water source, one entrance, narrow. I can, I can, you know, maybe mitigate that. It was impenetrable. It was cut into a solid rock cliff. The Edomites had felt safe and secure in their own making. They took and showed pride in their self-sufficiency. They carved out of rock by hand, day after day, month after month, and year after year. Year after year, they, they, they by hand together, they coordinated together, we're going to take our human hands, we're going to, of, we have concerns about security, we have concerns about safety, we have concerns, how are we going to protect ourselves? We are going to dig and carve into what God created in one day over the years, and we're going to be relying upon ourselves. We're not going to rely on God to protect us, to provision us. We're not going to be wise and listen. We're going to be self-reliant. We, Edom, will shelter ourselves from the storms. We will shelter ourselves from enemies. We will build kingdoms ourselves to ensure the survival of our people for generations to come. You know, oddly enough, if you weren't aware, you can go see Petra today. You can, you can Google it. It's in any number of movies. It's in Jordan. Uh, I think it was Indiana Jones and Last Crusade comes to mind. 
It's kind of a scene where they go upon and they're looking for the Holy Grail. And they use Petra as a, its location, oddly. But, but the point is, Petra today, this, this, this carved-into, rock-faced city, is a World Heritage Site. It's visited by tourists. People travel from all across the globe to marvel at this, what it took day after day, by hand, year after year. But it's void. It's empty. It sits there. Beautiful, empty, carved into rock. Friends, the sin of pride is dangerous and pervasive. You know, the Edomites, in their pride, had built this city. Like we talked about the neighbor, you know, maybe, maybe the loving the neighbor, the, the big easy ones are to see, but, but sin is, is, is often small yieldings or lowering of standards and erosions into, you know, you just don't, have this one area of your life disciplined and under control and the next day go all the way. It's usually a course of a series of choices. Now, I was thinking about, about pride. Um, you know, the Bible teaches us that pride is the surest path to destruction. I think it's Psalm, yeah, Psalm sixteen eighteen. Pride goeth before destruction. I was thinking about um, an athlete. I mean, if you were looking at me today, I don't think anybody would think I'm athletic. That's not what I'm going with. But there was a point in time, you know, uh, when, when, I, when I did, did weights for various reasons. And in weightlifting, I thought of this example where, and if you're not familiar, you lay, people lay down on a bench and they've got this bar, and they, do a, they call it the bench press because you're going to press this enormous weight. And there's a couple, like, moments, like... Uh, I think it's, you can bench your own weight. It's like, when you've hit that, you've got like bragging rights to your buddies. And then there's this other one that's further out there, that's a limited group, and, and I don't know the weight anymore, but I want to say it's because there's plates involved in the each way a certain amount, but there's somewhere around 315 or 310, some, some pounds, 310 pounds, 315 pounds. And so that, like, if you can get to this point where you can take this bar of 315 pounds that's resting safely on a, on a frame, and you can take it and extend your arms out, bring it down without dying, then you've achieved something, right? And this, this um, to get to this, this moment for this weight, and, you know, the point is not how long it takes, but it's, it takes years sometimes. It takes years of daily, weekly hard work and effort, you know, like putting in the effort to do so. So I don't want to be standing before you today saying, don't be proud of accomplishment. Okay, surely you should be proud of accomplishment and celebrate it. But there comes a point where you're no longer celebrating accomplishment, but you have drifted and fallen off the cliff into pride. And what that kind of looks like, so bench pressing. So typically, you have people that stand on either side. Right? They stand on either side of the bar. Maybe they, they stand behind your head. And the reason these people, they called spotters, are there are to make sure you, pushing the bar, don't die. That's, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, there's, so these people play a pretty critical role, right? Like They're like us here in the church. Like We're each other's spotters and, uh, spiritually. So, so if you were to say, you know, like I've been working for years towards this goal of 315 or 320, whatever the weight is, and, you know, all along this way for years, every time I had spotters, every time they were there for me, I can give you 10 examples where Pat Scully, you know, he was there, he kept the bar from hitting my chest, right? That's, that's one way. Or you could say, now when it comes time to pull this 320 pounds, I'm going to go it alone. Because I, of my own making, I have done this myself. I did not need help along the way. I have worked, I have earned. These are all heart postures. And then what happens in that moment is you push the bar up and it comes down. And there's any number of YouTube videos you could watch that are terrifying if you want to see them. But the point is, ultimately, pride is the surest path of destruction and it's sinful. 
And when we find, and it's not these big, you know, obvious moments. So when, we're, when we're at the big obvious moments, we've missed, it's too late, in my opinion. We should be setting our guardrails and inviting others into our lives more invasively so we can avoid these big things and maybe catch it when Pat sees me doing 200. He's like, hey, buddy, I, I know you can, but let me, let me spot you real quick, right? So surround yourself with people and others to help guard against the sin of pride. But clearly the Edomites here, as stated in the Word of God, they were over-reliant, over-prideful, not demonstrating humility. They had felt safe in the works of the cities they had built in verses 3 and 4, their self-sufficiency. You know, they exalted themselves. They set their nest upon the high. And God sent them plummeting from the heights in verse 4. You know, just as Petra and Edom fell, so will proud people fall. You know, the only everlasting security is not of our own works, but from God. You know, I think of like billionaires. You can see news articles often where billionaires are like building bunkers in New Zealand or Far Eastern Europe where they, they've kind of justified, you know, they see some calamity coming, which may or may not be coming, and, they, and they're, they're of their own works and their own makings, spending their own resources, relying upon possessions. Are people and possessions permanent? You know, we are but temporal. We're but a vapor. We can disappear in but a moment. God is eternal. He is unchanging. He is ours and we are his. Only he can provide the eternal security. You know, last, I was thinking about Jason's sermon last week. You know, he kind of, I won't go too far here, but he, he talked, you know, like what happens, what does eternal security look like? In the context of his sermon last week, eternal security means I am not going to end up in the gnashing of teeth, eternal agony, and lake of fire after the final judgment. Right? Eternal security means I'm going to not be there, but I'm going to be in the presence of God for eternity, where there's no pain, no suffering, no tears. That is the eternal security. You know, we can, we can take and look and know that pride and destruction and sins separate us from God. But it's only in humbling ourselves before others and before Him we get a more perspective worldview of each other. And it makes it easier to look at that neighbor who may be a former prisoner, a former drug dealer. It may be easier for us to, to love others as we have been loved by Christ. You know, I was thinking about our recent baptisms and when I was preparing for this sermon. And, you know, when I think about humbling, there's a moment in Matthew 18. The disciples, you know, learned men, they'd, they'd followed Jesus. They, they'd been in his presence. They go, you know, God, who, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And in Matthew 18, Jesus says, Whoever shall humble themselves as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. This little quiet child that was amongst them. Not the one talking the loudest, not the one asking the important questions, not the one, you know, maybe fixing the food. And, and, and you know, to me, the most beautiful moment is pairing that with the, what we've had recently where we've had young children humbling themselves before God and accepting Christ in their lives. That's absolutely beautiful. So humbling ourselves before God, you know, the Edomites did not. They weren't humble. They didn't love their neighbor. They didn't love them as themselves. They weren't relying upon God. They murdered, as we see going on in verses 5 through 7. You know, they murdered. They robbed. They took advantage of others. But God did not judge them out of vengeance. They were judged by God because he is a just God. You know, so this, this begs the question then, what that looks like? Vengeance meaning, I'm mad and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just do it, whether, whether it's right to do it or not. Simply. And then justice and judgment here, um, and being just, is you have done evil, and evil cannot go unpunished. 
That's kind of the difference there. In verse 5, it says, If the thieves come to thee, the robbers by night, how they're cut off, they would have stolen everything. The grape gatherers came to thee. The hidden things are searched up and sought out, or sought out, sought up and searched out. You know, we begin to see, you know, in, in Obadiah here, this prophecy of how I'm going to destroy Edom, or Edom, God, going to destroy Edom. These are why. You were pride-filled. You did these things. I'm going to take you from on high, bring you low. The things that Edom's perceived as strengths, their own works, God's just judgment, as we see here in verses 5 and 6, and continuing, to the complete destruction of those works. You know, they were reliant upon their wealth in verse 5 and 6. is stolen. Not, not some of it. It doesn't say... If thieves and robbers come to me, they come by night, how they're cut off. It says, would they have not stolen till they had enough? Like, aren't they going to take everything? Like, you know, and, and when you look as it continues on in uh, verse 6, how are the things of Esau, the Edomites, searched out? Like, like, you know, you guys in Edom have this city, and like maybe you have a treasure room that everybody knows about, and you're, we're going to go steal that. But because you're worried somebody could come in and steal that, You've now, like, hidden your treasure. You've got other treasures in other rooms, under the bed, sock drawer. Gone. All of it. When God judges Edom, it's not partial. It's not some setback. All of their resources, all their hidden things, all of their treasures, taken. Nothing left. Their allies turn against them, as mentioned in verse 1 and 7. They deceive them, prevail, and are victorious over them. They were destroyed. You know, they didn't, they didn't have, you know, at that time, when this eventually happened, this is the being prophesied, but when it happens, it's not as if the Edomites sit around for six months on their news channel Hey, you know, we, we've got stock prices are down, unemployment's high, inflation's high. We should, we, you know, this isn't some temporal enduring strife or struggle. This is eternally permanent forever. As Zeke, as we continue on in the next slide here, you see, and yeah, thank you, sir. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, not John Visser, the Lord says, shall I not in that day even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone shall be cut off by slaughter. Why? Because your violence against your brother shall come over thee. And it says in verse 10, you should be cut off forever. The wise of Edom, the self-taught, worldly knowledge, like they had all the science right. They knew how to carve this city into the cliff and they plan all their military defenses. They thought they were wise enough to scheme with, with other people against Jerusalem were foolish because they mocked God. The Edomites had denied helping the people of God, aided the enemies of the people of God, allowed the people of God to be destroyed, plundered the remains of the nations of the people of God. In short, you know, Edom was at enmity with God for their treatment of his people. And God is prophesizing through Obadiah, A Edom, this is it. Like, I'm not standing idly by. I see how you are treating my people. A judgment is coming upon you for your crimes. You know, in verses 11 through 14, you see they stood by. Let strangers take them away, meaning them being the people of God. They went in their gates. So, like, so, so it's, it's pretty egregious, right? They stood by. Uh, right, verse 11, yeah. They stood by on the other side and they watched enemies enter into Jerusalem. When it was all said and done, they block those trying... Not only are we going to stand by, I see what's happening to God's people. They stood by and they blocked those trying to escape. Then after the battle is done, they, they participated in like the drawing of lots to divide up the plunder because they helped. Like, hey... Edom, if you, like, 
turn, turn an eye. If you help us, like, sack Jerusalem, you can have some of the treasure, right? So they, they, you could argue that they were probably justifying that they were passive. I'm not going into Edom and killing Edomite, or I'm not going into Jerusalem as an Edomite and killing God's people. I'm just standing in the way. I'm not actively going and murdering the people of God in this particular case. I may have flipped one page too many, sorry. Yeah. They stood by as the enemies took people, the captive. They were like vultures in the plundering of Jerusalem. When they should have stood with them. You know, this, this group of versings, verses 11 through 14, I'll say, you did this, but what you should have done is this. Like, you stood by, what you should have done is helped and, and, and joined forces with. You blocked off and didn't let, let people escape and gave them over to, you should have, like, helped them escape. You stole from, you celebrated, you sat there, you drank your wine, you rejoiced in the destruction of Jerusalem. And a minute ago, I mentioned justification. It might be worth noting that I know at times I think of sin as things I'm not supposed to do. Right? Think of if I do, if I choose to do an act that's sinful, then the, I've done an act. That, so, so it's an act. If I go out in the crowd right now and I pour violence out on poor Matt. And poor Matt's done nothing. It's a, you, all of you are shocked. It's terrible. It's an act. I acted. But is it sinful? Is inaction sinful? Are there times where our inaction can be sinful? Are there times where it is sinful to stand by as the people of God? Now, I, I, would, I would offer not to say it is because just I say so. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll point out an example here in a minute. But I'll offer that it is, yeah, there are cases. Now, this doesn't mean that it's upon you to go solve world hunger for every person in the world. That's, that, you know, that's not what I'm about to talk about. It's not for you unless God's calling you to do so. Let, let me put that asterisk there. There is chance but it's not on you the individual to take into account you know figure out how many homeless people there are in the world and house them that's, that's not necessarily what I'm talking about but there are cases and I'll point out here a second from scripture where it is sinful to do nothing we see here in Obadiah clearly a rebuke Verses, you know, verses 11 through 14, they should have and they didn't do this. And now because of those acts against their brother, they're going to be judged. But we can also look in God's word in James 4.17. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If you have withheld helping others in time of need, it is sinful. Don't ignore it. Don't rationalize it. Don't justify it. If you do, like I have, I urge you to repent. Grow. Seek God on it. You know, Edom was elated, and they were actively participating in the troubles of others. They were the only neighbor of both Israel and Judah not promised mercy from God. They had not helped his people. They looted Jerusalem, celebrated their misfortunes, turned against their own blood. And just... A just God is not going to stand by and not fulfill his promises and render judgment upon Edom. So God says, you've done these grievances against my people. Enough is enough. I am coming for judgment against you. And it's funny, you know, it's not funny. Sorry, that was a bad choice of word. It's kind of like a default it's interesting to consider, you know, so the marvel of Petra as a World Heritage Site I'll offer is not that it's this wonderful man-made thing carved into rock, though it, there is some historical and beauty and craftsmanship, 
Friends, I'll offer that the marvel of Petra, the capital city of the Edomites, is that God has, God will, God does continue to be just. Like, as we sit here or stand here today, the kingdom of have gone. The tribes of Esau, you know, Esau's gone. But God's people in Israel remain. They're destroyed forever. So verses 1 through 14, this is the judgment I'm going to have on you because you've done these things. And then as we transition away in verse 15 is this day of the Lord. And Ben's covered the day of the Lord pretty extensively, so I won't overly emphasize it here. But it's important to note that, that you know, verses 1 through 14, this is what I'm going to do as you as God. This is the why behind it. I'm not sitting idly by. But there is a day, and it's this day of the Lord where I, the Lord, am going, this is when it's going to happen. And when this happens, this is what's going to occur. The, you know, Obadiah is writing this prophetically, telling them there's a day of the Lord near all the heathen. It'll be done to you as you've done to others. Your reward shall be on your own head. This day is coming. Mark, I don't know what day to tell you, so I've given you the warning that judgment is coming against you, but there will be a day of the Lord when the Lord meets out his just judgment on the Edomites. You know, in verse 15, we have the announcement where the Edom and all the enemies of God will receive retribution for their sins against them. Verse 16, For as you, Edom, drank idolatrous, for as you, Edom, for as you, Edom, sat and drank wine in celebration, so you too now, Edom, will drink the cup of my wrath. God talks about the cup of his wrath in Jeremiah 25. Uh, verse 15 refers to it as the wine cup of fury from my hand. Psalm 75, 8 refers to the hand of the Lord's cup as a, as a cup of red that the evil will drain the dregs of and the wicked. So the day of the Lord is the day where, where God meets out his justice and judgment. And in that moment, we see his restorative salvation of his people. Right, so there's a day, Edom, coming. You've done all these things. This day is near. And when it comes... On Mount Zion, there will be deliverance. There will be holiness. There will no longer be all this worshiping of idols. The house of Jacob, Israel, will have their possessions that you took from them. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. Joseph, a flame. Esau, like kindle. So there's a date. When this comes, when God meets out his justice and judgment, the people who have wronged God's people are going to be utterly destroyed. You know, if you looked back then in 500 or 600 B.C., and you looked at Petra, and you looked at Jerusalem, and you thought, which one of these would be here 2,000 years later? It might be easy to say Petra, right? Strong, defensible city. Jerusalem continually ransacked and invaded by its enemies. And we know from history that this isn't just prophecy that was awaited still today. This occurred. You know, in around 160 B.C., Judas Maccabeus routed out the Edomites. You know, at the time, you know, so, like, so this was probably, you know, 500, 600 B.C., depending on which time period you ascribe to as written. And it's B.C., so 164. So a few hundred years later, so Obadiah didn't, did Obadiah get to see the fulfillment of God's promise physically here on earth? Not several hundred years later. But he knew and trusted and believed in it. You know, at the time, Petra strong, Edom strong, wealthy, wise by worldly standards, Jerusalem 
routinely in calamity and distress. Petra now laying hollow and empty. In verses 17 through 21, Obadiah prophesies that one day God would pour out his just judgment on Edom to restore Israel. It's just another clear demonstration to the absolute certainty of the word of God. God promises to, does, and will fiercely issue justice on those who have, do, mistreat the people of God. So if you're, if you're sitting here today as a person of God and you, and you feel mistreated, or, you, or if, if you don't, if you look around the world, you can clearly find examples of the people of God being mistreated. And, it, and if you, you look close enough, there will be moments where it rents your heart. And it's hard knowing that I am well-fed, well-clothed, financially secure, safe, able to stand before you this morning, knowing possibly somewhere in Kenya there's a pastor with more courage standing there under the threat or maybe being drugged and kidnapped out of his church, family murdered. To to think, when is enough is enough? When When is it coming where God will mete out his justice? Obadiah is an example that God does. His will on this earth as in heaven, not in our timeline, but in his perfect, omniscient. Has the world really changed so much since Obadiah was written 2,000 years ago? Are not people still relying on self, self-made righteousness? How much faith are we placing in our possessions and other people? Governments. Now, now, don't get me wrong. Okay. Hurricane's coming. Is it prudent to be prepared? Right? Like, snowstorm coming. Is it prudent to be prepared for the snowstorm? Make sure you have what you need to be safe through a storm. You can see it's a forecast, right? It's a weather forecast. Uh, there's prudence there. It's probably a good opportunity. I think everybody jokes about the there's no milk or bread left. People that don't ever buy milk always buy it when there's a snowstorm coming, so the people that need milk now don't have it. But is there a point where the fear, the concern, the worry of coming calamity becomes prideful and sinful where you're going to endure that calamity of your own workings. I am a billionaire. I am going to buy land in New Zealand and create a homeless, you know, kind of a crisis. I'm going to pay people to be on 24-7 call to take me, put me in an airplane with armed defense to, like, keep others away, fly me to there, and, like, go in and shut the door and celebrate the distress of others. That's really visible, right? That's, that's the big car, neighbor crash in the car. But what are the subtleties of being overly self-reliant? What kingdoms are we building, are we relying on in our lives? Do we love God with our heart, soul, and minds and our neighbors as ourselves? In Obadiah, we see God justly will not allow for evil to go unpunished. Those faithful to God have secure futures. God is sovereign and timeless. God has an ultimate just judgment and mercifully restores his people, right? Verses, uh, it may split the screen. So like when you get into verses 17 through 21, right? Like God says, I'm going to deliver you. And the uh, verses where it talks about, yeah, in the south they shall possess the Mount of Esau, the Philistines. It's like, so on this day of the Lord, I am restoring this kingdom, right? A savior are going to come. And it was, in this case, uh, for the judgment of Edom, the Maccabites. So they, they come, and these are, I'm going to establish this. Like, you have this border this way. You have this border to here. Your group, so I'm, this is it. Like, these are the defining realms of the kingdom being established. And in that day, the Savior will look upon Esau, and all the kingdom will be the Lord's. That day occurred 
But there is a day of the Lord at hand. I don't know when. I'm not going to lie or pretend to know. The Bible clearly says I won't. But that day is foretold in Luke 21, Matthew 24, 1 and 2 Thessalonians and Revelations. You know, we, a Savior has come and will return. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself, inclined to us, lived the perfect life we cannot live, endured the most brutal murder in all of human history. You know, Jesus at the cross willingly accepts the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf. He died, buried, and after three days is resurrected and sits at the right hand of God. Jesus endured this for me, for you, the full cup of wrath for that bad neighbor, the drug addict, the imprisoned, the people that look differently than us, Right? Jesus came to save. Not just for, sorry, I lost my train of thought. Jesus bore the full cup of God's wrath for the people who have sinned against him and for the people who have treated and trusted the people of God poorly. This moment making Jesus both just and justifier. Friends, we have all sinned. We have all fall short of the glory of God. We know that the wages of the sin is death. But thankfully, Jesus took on the atoning sacrifice for us. And the only way through the Father is through him. One day he will return. And all will be judged. One day that cup of wrath is not just reserved for the kingdom of Edomite, or the kingdom of Edom, for the Edomites, but all of the earth. That cup of wrath will pour out all over the whole entire earth. All will be brought and judged and end up as described to like Jason talked about last week. So what are we to do about it? Do we spend our time of our own works building bunkers, provisions and wealth and wisdom on how to survive radiological calamity? Or are we about the business of loving our neighbors as ourselves? Are we placing our faith and trust in God to deliver us? God will ultimately establish this eternal kingdom through an eternal Savior, Jesus Christ. May we know him, trust him, love him, and place our faith in him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, help us to be still and know that you are God. When we are about the busyness of our own self-kingdom-making Help us to be more reliant upon you and mold us into neighbors that love as Christ loved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.